Hello, everybody. Welcome back to episode 20 of Coworkers Killing Time. 20. That's a big one. Yes, it is. You will know from the intro music that this is a true crime Tuesday. And today we are focusing on Connecticut crimes because we're in Connecticut. And there's just no end. There's not. So many. And my case, this is actually funny because we had already thought about doing this as a topic. And I listen to podcasts at work. I've talked about this before. Usually if anyone comes in, my earbud is in and I have some podcast going. And this was a Dateline podcast from January 21st, I think. And it's in Waterbury, Connecticut. And it was just way too interesting not to talk about. Is it an older case? Or well, do- so the case originally took place in 1993. Okay. But the story was on Dateline because it's crazy. Okay. It's just, it's, it's crazy. crazy. And it's a failure of the Waterbury Police Department wholly. Okay. And just, there's victim blaming, there's police failure, there's non-investigations, there's just a whole slew of things. Okay. And hearing the story, it feels like maybe it was in, like, the 70s because of the way they're doing their police work, and not the 90s. Wow, okay. So... I look forward to hearing about that. Yeah. So that's good. In current events, yesterday was the Super Bowl. Yes. So that was very exciting. I loved the halftime show. I also loved the halftime show. Very much so. I watched 0% of the actual Super Bowl. Same. Just watched the halftime show. I watched the, well, I watched the commercials. Oh, I see. I didn't even watch those. There's some really great commercials. The only one we saw because we were waiting for the halftime show to come on was the Tommy Lee Jones, Leslie Jones, Rashida Jones truck commercial. And then Nick Jonas comes. That was pretty funny. That was really good. There were some really great commercials, I thought. But I, as always, I very much enjoyed the halftime show. And I think it's, again, I grew up with a lot of that music. Like Eminem was middle school for me. 50 Cent's first album came out my senior year of high school. So that was like really cool. I was very excited that 50 Cent showed up out of nowhere. Yeah, that was pretty excellent. He wasn't even advertised. Uh, well, I know that they were expecting a special guest. So, ah, so that's who it is. Surprise, so there there you it go. Was. But yeah, that was, that was really wonderful. And I love that the country is divided about whether, oh, yeah. whether or not it was a good. Halftime show was not a good halftime show. They definitely were. I was talking to my mom about that today, and she was saying how um, she couldn't believe people on Facebook were either like, I absolutely loved it, or I absolutely hated it. And no matter what you posted, you had detractors from the other side coming to be like, I hated it, or I can't believe you hated it, I loved it, how dare you? Right. Well, I did see one one little tiny article. I didn't read. I didn't read the whole thing. I was just reading like the highlight about how some people were calling like Mary J. Blige's outfit immoral, which is ridiculous. Which I is saw that article out- and I read it. Very outrageous. But then you have like the Dallas Cowboy cheerleader, yes. who they think is just wholesome and who are you know, in a crop top that is not even over any shorter. part of their midriff and yeah. is tied together at their cleavage, <clears throat> and their shorts are. Way, way shorter than what Mary J. Blige had. You can I'm see sorry, their cervix was, in it. Yeah, you, absolutely. She was perfectly... It, she it was, was perfectly fine. That was a very wholesome outfit. The whole was, show was pretty wholesome. It was super wholesome considering the peep, the players. And right. I thought it was... Uh, I thought they did great. It was too short for me. I definitely could have watched that forever and ever. I did see an article, and I did not get to read this, that people were making fun of. I think it was from the New York Post, because that's like the, the kind of tabloid newspaper that's in New York. Like, yeah. It's not like the New York Times. Right. But I, I guess somebody had written an article being like, Snoop Dogg smoked marijuana before he performed. Oh, 
And is people that were really, like, yes, that's a newsworthy story. And somebody was like, wow, thank you so much for breaking that top shelf piece of news. What investigating, re- investigative wow. reporting you must have been doing. That's hilarious. I'm sure many, many people there at the Super Bowl performing or otherwise were. Right. We're smoking. And I don't think he would have been the first performer either to, no. like, imbibe on that. So, like, get it together, people. That's ridiculous. So, that was pretty funny. Yeah, that's, um, that's, that's fake news right there. Yeah. So, I wanted to talk about that just because it was a kind of big news thing before we get into yeah. our true crime episode. But now we can get into it. So, my case is about Donna Palumba, who, like I said before, is from Waterbury, Connecticut, So it was September 11th, 1993, and for the first time in 12 years, she was home alone with her children. Her husband was out of town, and, like, this was the first time they had been apart in 12 years. Okay. And he was out of town for a wedding, for a family wedding. He was in Colorado, and they were in Connecticut. A masked intruder broke into their house and sexually assaulted and raped her with her kids in the house, with everything. So he ended up, like, leaving after this happened, and she ran to their neighbor's house because she didn't know what was going to happen. So she didn't wake her kids up, nothing. Ran to her neighbor's house, was like, please call 911. Actually, on the Dateline episode I was listening to, if you listen to it or watch the episode, they have all of the 911 tapes, and it's very frantic because the neighbor is calling, saying, my neighbor was just attacked, she was raped, like, we really need help. And she's in the background just being like, I don't know if he's going to come back, and my kids are still at home. And it's it's very heart-wrenching for a mother because, sure. like, this I happened to her, it. but she's thinking about her kids. And, no, <clears throat> she didn't wake them up. But at the same time, I understand why. Sure. Because I wouldn't want to frantically wake my children up and now there's cops here. Yes. And all of this is going on. Well, plus, so, you don't want to draw attention to them if that person is... Right there or around or yeah correct she did the right thing so the police come to the house and investigate and everything and they but they have no leads they have no information so a few weeks go by and where this case gets very interesting is oh i'm sorry she didn't even call her husband this is another vital fact of the case she didn't call her husband that day to tell him that it happened and he ended up flying home on like the 13th from the wedding okay so two days later he flies home and he finds out that she has been raped because she tells him once he gets home. But like she says in the Dateline interview, I don't tell him yeah. because what, one, what's he going to do? Leave the wedding early and be frantically sure. on a plane? For Colorado hours. is not close to Connecticut. I've flown to Denver. Yeah. It's not a fun or short flight. Right. So you're going to be on that flight for five or six hours freaking out the whole time. Yeah. Like that you're not there and like it's your fault. Sure. So she doesn't tell her husband it happened until he gets back home. And then they start, like, looking into this, demanding some sort of justice from the police department. And they keep going and be like, do you have any leads? Do you have any leads? And the police, when she goes in one time, pull her into an interrogation room and read her her Miranda rights. Uh Because now they think, well, you were having an affair. You didn't want to tell your husband. So you staged that it was a rape so because you thought you were going to get caught how was she going to get caught i don't know but this is this is literally their thinking here you staged this but you're having an affair okay and that's what happened so now you're obstructing justice so we're going to arrest you wow and 
imagine being a victim in that situation where you know what happened to you and you just want help and the police department will not help you. So then in listening to the Dateline article or newscast, they were talking about how the police officer that they complained to who was in charge of the other police officer that was interrogating her, they were brothers. So he didn't do anything. And they just continued to not look into this case anymore. So I did find this article, not based on the uh, Dateline episode, but this article is called To Catch a Monster. And uh, it says, excellent work by Waterbury Police Department leads to arrests in controversial 1993 rape case. So newsflash, she was not having an affair and she really did get raped. And it's so crazy and creepy, like, who did it? This article is about Neil O'Leary, who's actually now, or at the time of this article, because it was written in 2004, was the chief of police of Waterbury. And I think part of that was because he solved this case. He felt like the department failed her. So he looked into this and went above and beyond to bring this guy to justice. So the first thing I want to note is that this article breaks down what actually happened. It says, within weeks of the attack, the detective in charge of the case, Lieutenant Doug Moran, read Palumba her Miranda rights, threatened to arrest her, and said that she would lose custody of her two children if she didn't confess to fabricating the rape. Again, victim blaming. No thanks. 1993. Yeah. Crazy. She was devastated at the bizarre turn of events. Experts later testified at a civil trial that she suffered extreme psychological trauma and damage from the police. She had turned to the police department for help, but the investigators did not believe her story. Appalled at the police investigation, state's attorney John Connolly reassigned the case to O'Leary, who at the time was second in command of the Waterbury Detective Bureau. O'Leary was stunned by what he encountered. This case has always bothered me because I have always felt Waterbury Police Department let her down. The case was mishandled from the beginning and we made huge mistakes in the investigation. The police never called out the forensic team that night. They never did any of that stuff because they thought it was weird that she wasn't going to tell her husband and they thought it was weird because that was what Dateline was covering. They thought it was very strange and weird that she was not waking her children up. And she's like, why? I don't want them to know what happened and I don't want them to be involved in this. Can I ask a question that maybe you don't know the answer to, but if, if it, uh, is it normal, like for something like this to occur and then the police to not reach out to the husband, even as a, I don't know, make sure that he is really where he is. And I think, I think now even... probably not, but look at this handling. I mean, yeah. this is just a failure of epic proportions all around. Sure. She was raped in the early morning hours of September 11th, 1993. The police botched the evidence at the scene and later accused her of manufacturing the rape to cover up an affair that she was having while her husband was out of town. Because again, the police thought, and I mean, she did too, thought that it was super suspicious that for the first time in 12 years, this man goes out of town and then all of a sudden his wife is raped. Like, what a weird situation. It has to be somebody watching they know we're watching their yeah. house or some sort of thing and it's not like there was social media back in 1993 right so again it more even more points to like is this someone you know like what is going on yes. so and it says it was too coincidental that the first time john wasn't home in 12 years donna was raped o'leary said the rapist knew he wasn't in the house and no one was going in that house if he was home because you know waterbury yep it's a 
small town city feeling thing where if the people know each other, you know each other well. Yeah. Nobody's going to mess with this guy if he's well known in Waterbury right. and go into his house right. and do something to his wife. Yeah. Uh, the key fact in the case was that the rape occurred the first time he had been away from his home in 12 years. So whoever r- raped her knew her and knew that he wasn't home. The investigation then went on to zero in on a stag party that was held the night the victim was raped. It was a stag party that he would have been present her husband john would have been present at but he was in colorado at the wedding many of his friends and family were at the stag party and it was widely known that he was out of town because their whole circle was at the party like asking where he was and talking about that so o'leary then believed that the rapist was at that party so they had followed a few clues and seen things but they weren't really sure of who it could have been so they, it says the one good thing the Waterbury Police Department did do on the night of the rape was to send her to the hospital where evidence was collected off of her body. Okay. O'Leary had Palumbo's complete list of people who knew Donna would be home alone that night, and DNA samples were taken from 36 individuals. Everyone on the list cooperated, but there was no match. Okay. So they're kind of at a dead end. Uh, and then all of a sudden... This lady comes in as O'Leary was about to head home one night uh, from headquarters. A 21-year-old girl had filed a complaint against a 47-year-old co-worker alleging that he had tried to assault her in July. The case caught O'Leary's attention because the alleged assailant, John Regan, was from a prominent Waterbury family that O'Leary personally knew. Wow. So uh, just a little spoiler for you. He did it. And it gets really crazy. After wondering if John Regan might be a suspect in Palumbo's rape case, O'Leary called an old friend who knew Regan and John Pal- John Regan and John Palumbo. Uh, I'm going to just use their last names from yeah. here on out because it's too confusing that they're both John. I feel like I'm at work with all the Johns. <laughs> yeah, too many Johns. Okay. O'Leary wanted to know if there was any chance that John Regan was at the stag party that night. Sure, the friend told O'Leary. The stag party was for his cousin. He would have definitely been there. And O'Leary found out John knew Regan, knew both Donna and John Palumba. They were friends. O'Leary felt sick to his stomach, but made arrangements to meet with the Palumbas to talk. Over the years, O'Leary continued to meet with the couple to plumb for any new leads that might break the case. As they talked, O'Leary said he casually asked whether they knew John Regan. Not only did they know him, they said, he had been inside their home. O'Leary mentioned that he had been accused of assaulting his young co-worker and had been at the stag party 11 years ago. O'Leary told John and Jana that Regan was going to be arrested for allegedly assaulting the 21-year-old girl. Wow. Okay, so that happened, but it gets even insane, more insane. So during the arrest, O'Leary asked Regan if he would give a DNA sam- sample, and he agreed. The DNA turned out to be a perfect match with the DNA recovered from Donna Palumba on the night of the rape. Wow. I was shocked and stunned, O'Leary said. The result hit me like a ton of bricks. I felt terrible for both families because they all knew each other. But, bum, bum, bum. Because the statute of limitations on sexual assault charges ran out six years ago, he was arrested and charged with kidnapping. He pleaded not guilty for his arraignment and is now free on a $300,000 bond. He hired a prominent defense attorney, uh, defense attorney, defense attorney, Hubie Santos, to oh, defend yeah. him. And his pretrial was set for November 17th. So at the time of this article, this is what was going down. Okay. However, 
there's more developments to this. There's more. There's more because this article is from 2004 and there's much more. Like he's in jail right now. Okay. Uh, He hired this defense attorney and he was found not guilty of kidnapping her. I know that from the Dateline article. The other thing that I think kind of played into that was that when the affair rumors were going on and even when people found out that he was the one who was accused for it, People in the town were being really mean to Donna oh, and to her husband, John, sure. not this John. How dare you do being that? Like, such a good guy. Being like, you were just having an affair with him and you didn't want your husband to find out. Like, you're such a, you know, all the slurs. Sure. It, he would never have done that. XO, like, et cetera, et cetera. Even though he's accused of sexually assaulting his 21-year-old co-worker. Right. No, no, how dare you say any of this? Wow. So that was running through the town. So I don't think you're going to get an actual fair jury of your oh. peers in that case. So he was found um, not guilty of the kidnapping. But not all hope was lost because while out on bond a year later... He was arrested again in 2005 in Saratoga, New York, because he tried to shove a then 17-year-old track star into a van. Wow. So they had, I don't know if it was, because again, this is from the Dateline article. This isn't from the article I was reading. They had either like gone to a restaurant after a track meet, like a bunch of girlfriends, and they were, and she was walking out to her car And he grabbed her and went to shove her into his van. And luckily, across the way, somebody who knew her saw her and yelled. Okay. And he got caught doing this. So when they found, when the police came inside of the van, there was a tarp, a noose, a syringe with sedative inside of it. So, like, you know he was escalating that. Yeah. So luckily for that crime in New York State, he did get 12 years in prison there to be con- served concurrently, meaning at the same time, yeah. with seven years for the co-worker assault in 2014, or 2004, and 15 years for Donna Palumba's attack. So they did tack that on because he escalated the crimes, sure. but he did serve all of his time in New York. He can't, he never, like, had anything commuted here to serve here. So he did get sentenced. And there is a chance that he is getting out relatively soon, which is very creepy. But that did happen. So that is the case. But the important thing is that uh, Donna has her own nonprofit organization. She's an author. Her website is called Jane Doe No More. And she advocates for victims of sexual assault. She has a book out, I think, that's also called Jane Doe No More. And it said in a different article that I was looking at that her case, this case, changed the laws for Connecticut statute of limitations for sexual assault victims. So I thought that this was a very important case to talk about because, again, the police can't always get it right, but this was just negligently not getting it right. It's as if they really didn't want to give it a, you know, a, right. like a, a great try or something. Right. And a shame. to end out the episode on a happy note, that article was when Neil O'Leary was going for police chief. He is now the former police chief of Waterbury because he is the current mayor of Waterbury. Oh, wow. Okay, good. So good for him. Thank you for stepping up and doing your job good when job, other people sir. did not want to. Good job. So now we'll get to Robin's like <clears throat> horrifically sad case. 
And before I start, I would just like to say that I'm not feeling well yet again because this happened, you know, about a month, I don't know, five, six weeks ago. So my voice is going to sound funny and I apologize. But I think they can tell that from I'm your voice because I can tell. I'm just trying to get through, man. I'm just yeah. trying to get through. We appreciate your dedication to the <laughs> the cause. Yeah, you know, I had to show up. It's fine. I'll go home and have some soup. It'll all be good. Okay, so I think everybody pretty much in the state of Connecticut knows about the Cheshire home invasion murders. Yes. And so I feel like it was also national news, so I'm sure lots of people know about it. It for sure was. So I'm just going to read a little bit from the Wikipedia. Well, it's not even a little. It's like a lot of pages. It's such an in-depth, crazy, horrifying story, and we'll talk a little bit about what, what you had said that... I don't know if you read about the possible. Well, anyway, we'll go. We'll talk about that after. So, okay, Cheshire, Connecticut home home invasion murders. The Cheshire, Connecticut home invasion murders occur- occurred on July twenty third, two thousand seven. I really can't believe it was that long ago. This is how I know my life is just like flying by. See, but- I can believe it was that long ago, but I was in two thousand seven. That was my senior year of college, and for some reason, I thought I still lived at home when that happened. So my timeline is yeah. just off. And mine is really off. But so we would have been at our our house now for a year. So it just mm-hmm. seems crazy. Anyway, um, when Joshua. Commissar Jeffsky and Stephen Hayes invaded the residence of the Pettit family in Cheshire, Connecticut, United States. Dr. William Pettit was severely injured. His wife, Jennifer Hawk Pettit, and his two daughters, 17-year-old Haley and 11-year-old Michaela, were all murdered. Upon entering the Pettit's home, Commissar Jeffsky beat Dr. Pettit with a baseball bat. He and Haynes then restrained Dr. Pettit in the basement. Hawk Pettit and her daughters were also restrained. Hayes later, ki- later kidnapped Hawk Pettit and forced her to withdraw money at the bank. Does it tell you here? Because I know I read it was like, f- I think, 15000 or something. Didn't they keep them for like <clears throat> days, too? It wasn't just like one day? I think day? it was like an all-night thing. I don't know okay. if it was days, but it was pretty much uh, a very long time. After returning to the home, I mean, can you imagine? So left, went to no. the bank with her, had her withdraw money. The daughters, yeah. So after returning to the home, he raped her and strangled her to death. Michaela was raped by Commissar Jeffsky. Hayes and Commissar Jeffsky then decided to burn down the house to destroy the evidence, which is really one of the stupidest things that all criminals do. And they had two daughters? Two. And both of them were in the house. Okay. Yep, yep. So while Haley and Michaela were tied to their beds, the two men doused them and the house with gasoline. They then set the house on fire, leaving the daughters to die of smoke inhalation. So that's, you know, that's mm-hmm. how they died. Just The case garnered a significant amount of attention in Connecticut, while the Hartford Current citing it as possibly the most widely publicized crime in the state's history. The murders received national and international attention as well, and had a significant impact on Connecticut's death penalty, ultimately delaying its abolition. Hayes and uh, Hayes was convicted of the murders and sentenced to death in t- 2010. Commissar Jeffsky was convicted in 2011 and, and sentenced to death in 2012. But in 2015, the Connecticut Su- Supreme Court, in defiance of the General Assembly, which had abolished the death penalty only for future cases, ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional and committed 
and commuted, sorry, all death sentences to life imprisonment. So he's going to be spending life in prison. So he's so. still alive, but the other one he's got alive. put to death in 2010. Um, That's what the article said. Yeah. So on the on the evening of Sunday, uh, let's go. This is more of a background. I'm sorry, I should say this is more background. On the evening of Sunday, July 22nd, 2007, 48-year-old Jennifer Hawk Pettit and her 11-year-old daughter, Michaela Pettit, went to a local stop-and-shop grocery store in Cheshire. They picked up food for a family. I gotta just say that, like, all of this whole story is, like, gets me upset, obviously, because we all do this. Mm -hmm. We all have our kids. We all run into the store. Yeah. We grab dinner. We go home. And then, you know, we nobody expects anything like this no. to happen. But it happens. You know, it's just, like, this just really upsets me anyway. Also an 11-year-old. And I have an almost 11-year-old kid. So, um they went to stop and shop. They picked up food for family dinner Michaela planned, that Michaela planned to prepare. During their trip to the grocery store, Commissar Jeski noticed them and took interest, then followed them home. Prosecutors argued at the trial that he was motivated by money and his interest in Michaela, whom he later sexually assaulted. Shortly afterwards, Stephen Hayes sent a text message to him that read, I'm chomping at the bit to get started. Need a margarita soon. Hayes then texted, we still on? Karmasar Jeffsky replied, yes. Hayes' next text asked soon, to which Commissar Jeffsky replied, I'm putting the kid to bed. Hold your horses. So I just want to go back and say something about this. These two guys are fathers. Oh God! I know. Like it's. And, I and never knew that <clears throat> part of it. Thomas Arjuski actually has a daughter. Gross. So are you kidding me? Like disgusting. That's really gross. And so I'm confused. So the day he saw them that day and that night was texting like, "I'm ready. Are you ready to go? Are we yeah. still on?" So I Thomas Arjuski saw them, right? No, Hayes saw them. I guess. Yeah. Because yeah. it seems like, if that, it seems like that seems more premeditated than just that day and him seeing them in the grocery store, even if that's what they want to portray. Because you wouldn't just text somebody, like, I wouldn't see you in the grocery store and then text somebody and be like, oh, yeah. hey, we still on? I'm chomping to get at this. It's right. like, no, yeah, where's no. the rest of the conversation? This seems like it has to have been, like, more pre-planned. But their defense was like, oh, he just saw them and it was, like, a thing of, like, lust and right. wanting money. Sure. But it seems like it was more definitely, planned out than that. Definitely more premeditated. So the home invasion, according to Hayes' confession, he and Commissar Jeffsky had planned to rob the Pettit house under the cover of darkness, leaving the family bound and otherwise unharmed. So okay. that's what they had planned. Both men attributed the grisly outcome to to a change of plan. Upon their arrival in the early hours of July 23rd, they found Dr. Pettit asleep on the couch in the sunroom. Commissar Jeffsky entered the basement through the unlocked door. Why is your basement Always. door unlocked? Leaning on leaning on the basement stairs was a baseball bat. Commissar Jeffsky then entered the sunroom and used the bat to strike Dr. Pettit four or five times. So he went from, we're just going to do this and leave them unharmed to, oh, look, there's a baseball bat. I'm going to go and beat right. the crap out of this man. But then it's also weird because, like, you haven't said it yet, but, like, the father survives. No one else yep. survives. Right. But he survives. And... Not that it's not bad, but the worst thing that happened to him is he got hit with a baseball bat a few times and then tied up. Right. And they got absolutely terrorized and victimized. Yes. And that seems like really weird. And I'm not trying to downplay his victimhood because yep. I know he's like a beloved member of Connecticut society and this is so right. sad nationally. But it just, that seems suspicious to me always that 
they were going to leave them fine, and now, like, the wife is dead, both daughters are dead, dead and yeah. he's fine. Yes. Because I, I, if you're yeah. going to family annihilate, usually you're going to annihilate everyone. But what's crazy is that, well, I mean, of course, there are a couple of morons that could have lied, but the fact that they say, like, oh, well, that's not really what we were planning on doing. So yeah. I don't know if we'll ever actually know the truth. Oh, we won't. It's, we and won't I'm sure it was, like, heat of the moment things. Probably. That just escalated it. So he and Hayes bound his wrists and ankles with plastic zip ties and rope. Dr. Pettit remembers one perpetrator telling the other if he moves to put two bullets in him. The children and their mother were then bound in their respective rooms. Hayes and Commissar Jeffsky tied them by their wrists and ankles to their bedposts and placed pillowcases over their heads. After restraining the victims, Commissar Jeffsky and Hayes ransacked the house for cash. They then took Dr. Pettit to the basement where they tied him to a support pole. Hayes and Commissar Jeffsky continued ransacking the house for money but were not satisfied with what they found. Then they took a check register with $40,000. I can tell you right now, if anyone came to my house and tried to look for cash, they would definitely not be satisfied with what they found. No, Because I don't keep cash in my house. Neither do we. We have, like, some coins for our Disney fund, but not much. There's just not much there, you know, because people keep borrowing from it. So it's not much. They decided to steal 15000 This is what they decided on. Surveillance video from a gas station shows Hayes purchasing $10 worth of gasoline and two cans that were taken from the Pettit home. After returning to the house, he took Hot Pettit to the bank. The prosecution later claimed that this was evidence of a premeditated murder. During this time, Commissar Jeffsky sexually abused the two sisters still held in the house. Which is terrible because the younger one was so young. Eleven. This is even worse. He documented the crimes with his cell phone camera. No, why? And you're a father of a daughter. I know. Hayes forced Hawk Pettit to withdraw $15,000 from her line of credit when the bank opened. Hawk Pettit informed the bank teller that the men were holding her family hostage in their home and threatened to kill them, kill them all. Bank surveillance cameras captured the transaction. The bank manager called 911 and reported the situation to police while Hawk Pettit was still with the teller. The manager reported to the 911 dispatcher in real time as Hawk Pettit left the bank. I have, like, goosebumps because... Okay, here's my thing. If you're doing that and you're taking it against the line of credit, that takes a little bit of time to do. Sure. So wouldn't you just be like, I'm just going to sit I'm here gonna hold, or with I'm, you. As a bank teller, I'm going to hold you here yeah. for a little bit. And then the police can go to your house and deal with that, but you can stay here and not leave with the men who are holding you hostage. Well, listen to this next one. The manager told the dispatcher that Hawk Pettit had indicated that the home invaders were being nice. And that she believed that they only wanted the money. No, because then they killed you right after you got home. The Cheshire police responded to the bank's report by assessing the situation and setting up a vehicle perimeter without revealing their presence. During this time, Hayes and Commissar Jeffsky aggravated the nature of their crimes. Commissar Jeffsky sexually assaulted 11-year-old Michaela, which he later confessed Two when interrogated. Evidence that Commissar Jeffsky raped Michaela came from her autopsy, during which state medical examiner Dr. Wayne Carver found his semen in her body. No. Commissar Jeffsky 
photographed the assault and rape on his cell phone. In his interrogation, he claimed he believed Michaela was 14 or 16. Okay, even if she was, that's still a minor. Yes, gross. To him, he felt like that made it better. 14? Forensic Ew. testing results showed that there was bleach on Michaela's clothes, indicating that Commissar Jeffsky may have tried to eliminate DNA yep. evidence from the assault. According to Hayes' confession, Commissar Jeffsky provoked him into raping Hawk Pettit. So, okay. like, what they dare? I like, think I'm going to rape dare this 11 year old. I dare you to rape her mom. Like, no. Dr. Pettit was able to hear his wife's assault upstairs. He yelled up and heard one of the invaders say, Don't worry, it's all going to be over with in a couple minutes. Dr. Pettit then managed to escape. He later testified to court that he felt a jolt of adrenaline and a need to escape after being told this. I thought it's now or never because, in my mind, at that moment, I thought they were going to shoot all of us. So he. But then they didn't even end up shooting anyone. Hayes said in his confession that while he was raping Hawk Pettit on the living room floor, Commissar Jeffsky entered the and announced that Dr. Pettit had escaped. Hayes then strangled Hawk Pettit. Some investigators have said that Hayes probably raped her after she had been murdered, now, making him a necrophile. Disgusting. Yep. He and Commissar Jeffsky doused her lifeless body and parts of the house, including the daughter's bedroom with gasoline. While tied to their beds, both daughters were doused with gasoline as well. Investigators would later find the accelerant on the, sorry, Pettit sisters' bed, beds, and on the clothing they wore. Hayes and Commissar Jeffsky started a fire and flooded the scene. Haley and Michaela both died of smoke inhalation. I know we said that. Haley managed to escape her restraints and run out of the bedroom into the hallway where she collapsed and died. Her body was found at the top of the staircase. Third and fourth degree birds on her feet indicate she got very close to the fire around the time she died. The medical examiner who performed the autopsy on her could not determine if the birds occurred before or after death. Michaela's body was found in her bedroom. She was still in her bed, her hands tied to it, and her lower body hanging off of it. Like with her older sister, Michaela's burns may have occurred while she was still alive. Oh, that's horrible. And, uh, this whole story is so horrifying to me. Um, Dr. Pettit had been able to free himself of the of the restraints, exit the house, and crawl to a neighbor's yard yard for help. The neighbor initially did not recognize Dr. Pettit due to the severity of his injuries. Meanwhile, Hayes and Commissar Jeffsky fled the scene in the Pettit family car. They were immediately spotted by surveillance, pursued and arrested one block away from, from uh, after crashing into a police car. The home invasion had lasted seven hours. So all of that that I just read was, seven hours was a seven-hour yeah. ordeal. So they confessed to the murders, detectives... The detectives testified that Hayes smelled of gasoline throughout his interrogation. Each assailant claimed that the other was dri- the driving force and mastermind behind the home invasion. Of course. Commissar Jeffsky also blamed Dr. Pettit for the murders. In Commissar Jeffsky's diary, which was later entered into evidence, he called Dr. Pettit a coward and claimed that he could have saved his family if he wanted to. So I don't know what that's all about. I don't know what that means either. So... Oh, maybe because he got free, but he ran away to the neighbors? Yes. But, like, if you got bashed in with a bat, you're probably not able to, like, cognitively think about what you should do. Just get out of there. Yeah. I'm and try sure. to get help. I'm not really sure what he thought was going to happen with that one, so... But, again, it's just sad because it seems like there's so many chances to have them get help and get out of the situation, like, with the bank teller, with the neighbor, and it just didn't go the way that it should have to have like a resolute ending and not like a tragic ending yeah it's uh, 
this one was very difficult. I kind of was reading quickly and skipped a few things because I'm like, I don't think I want to get into that. No, we don't need to have the cats. darkest podcast ever. And I think this is probably, I mean, I know there's a lot of dark crimes that happen oh, everywhere, is. but this is probably one. And the thing is, I remember it so vividly when it was happening, you know. Um, Commissar Jeffsky remained incarcerated at the Walker Reception what reception Center in lieu of $15 million bond until his conviction. His trial began on September 19, 2011, and on October 13th, he was convicted on all 17 counts. So on December 11th, the jury recommended the death penalty. Um, this is in 2012. The judge sentenced him to death by lethal injection, but we know And then it got commuted to life in prison. So that's what happened to them with their sentences. And then I have an article here about Dr. Pettit now, because I have seen him in my personal life at different, like, fundraisers over the years and things. So I I know that after everything that happened, um, the last time I saw him a few years ago, he had gotten remarried and they had just had a a baby. So he does have a new family now. Uh, But this article goes on to say that after rebuilding his family, he... Became, he moved back to his hometown of Plainfield, Connecticut, and launched a political career. So he's now a representative for the state oh, of Connecticut. Okay. So, um, and then he has established a foundation in honor of his slain wife and daughters, given away millions to charity, and his identity as the lone survivor of the Cheshire home invasion is never far away. He was certainly the most well-known freshman lawmaker. You can't get away from the fact that people know what your experience is when you walked in the door, said House Republican leader Themis Calvaritis, which is, this is for Connecticut state representatives for the actual state, not, like, federally. Right, okay. Um who has worked closely with Pettit since he began serving in the legislature in January. Notwithstanding the tragedy he went through, he ran for the rightest of reasons to make a difference, to help his community and the state in the direst of times. So I just have a question about all of this, or not even sort of a statement, but so both of these cases that we're discussing have certain things in common for sure. Home invasion, sexual assaults, but home invasions. And then I know that there were some years between them but i wondered i haven't read anything about it but i wonder if dr pettit was ever questioned you know in the line of did you have anything to do do with with it i don't see and that's the thing too i don't know i do want to say a little caveat that that thing i read that he is a state representative is from 2017 so that was then because i know for a fact that the themis lady is no longer in state politics so before anybody listens and is like that's not factual it's an old article right but that is where he was last they checked on him um i don't know and that's always something that i've kind of wondered too because it's one of those things where like yes you're the lone survivor of this thing and totally not like trying to shine any light on him just saying like true crime wise usually you're involved Right. I'm not saying I think he totally was involved. I'm just saying in usual circumstances, if you're the lone survivor of this, and it seems kind of suspicious that he's like, oh, the, allegedly they were going to shoot us all, but they never shot anybody. Right. I'm just saying in comparison to the other one that we literally just heard that you told us yeah. about, she was the only one, you know, there and... I mean, the only ones who could who could discuss it. I'm saying, and they immediately blamed, blamed her. her. Yeah, he well, is also 
Like, how come? I'm just saying, is it because he's a man, a doctor? Well, I was just going to say, I think it's because he's a white man, a rich yeah. white man, and she's, yeah. I mean, I feel like they, her and her husband are pretty affluent as sure. well, sure because she's yeah. a businesswoman and he's a businessman, sure. but I think the difference is, like, she's a woman who was sexually assaulted, he's a man who was the lone survivor of a tragic thing, Yeah, I think it's more, there's more victim blaming in the world of women getting sexually assaulted. So I don't know what the difference is with the two cases, but it does seem strange that she was blamed for her own case. I feel like they had to look into him at some level, but at the same time, they caught the guys immediately. So, right. Yeah, they were definitely, it's much different than saying a masked intruder broke into my house and raped me. And I have no idea who he is. True. And they were, they, they did have surveillance of, Right. And they took her to the bank bank and and all of that. They were there. So, yeah. And I do have to say, which you and I had talked about, I feel like if he was involved, which we are not saying he was in any way, we're just, this is what we do. We talk about this stuff. If he was involved in any way, I would have to think that the two guys would have thrown him under the bus at some point. Oh, I And I don't know that they did or did not. I don't know enough about the story to say that they did or did not. Right. No, we're not saying that he's involved in it at all. We're just theorizing, like, why, in her case, would they immediately be like, if you don't confess to this, we're arresting you. Yeah. But then, in their case, then it doesn't seem like they looked into, like, oh, why was he the only one that survived? But again, they could have, because I was 21 when that happened, so I definitely was not highly following this case. Yeah. I'll be curious. I would be curious, but not to too curious but i'm just a little <laughs> curious about i guess the difference in many cases anyway how they go about looking into right we're gonna we're gonna you know question this person this significant other or we're not yeah i thought pretty much every significant other is questioned when there's some sort of a yeah i think so like but that, like i so. said in my case too she didn't want to tell her husband and no one told him until he got home so right that's a weird thing too because you would think they would look into him and what he was doing and was he and maybe they did setting this up but we'll never know because no. we're not investigators no we're not we but if you are in the connecticut you. area and you have any information about either of these cases or want to give us information or tell us where we went wrong because again We're just researching articles off the internet, so they might not be 100% foolproof. Probably not. We would love to hear from you, and you can email us at... CoworkersKillingTime at gmail.com. Great. We can post pictures of the victims, the perpetrators, all of the people we talked about in the cases today onto the Instagram, so be sure to follow us there at CoworkersKillingTime. You can listen to all of our episodes on our Facebook page, just go to facebook.com and search for Coworkers Killing Time Podcast. And you can follow us on Patreon to support the show and donate money and get some bonus content from us. So thank you so much for listening, thank and we you. will see you next week. Bye! Bye.